Hi guys, today our guest is Leila Surgeon from The Seam, a platform helping you with maintaining your clothing. We talk about the importance of taking care of your clothes, early days of running a marketplace, and also challenges related to running a startup as a female founder. If you want to listen to Leila's story and her take on running a startup, this is the episode for you. Enjoy the show. Hello guys, welcome back to Founding Impact. Our today's guest is Leila Sargent from The Seam, British startup that is building a platform that helps you repair your clothes. Sounds simple, but uh, we'll dig it out uh, in a, to, to that in a second. Uh, hello, Leila, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for coming. We are like super excited to hear your story because uh, you represent a topic that we explored a little bit, fashion, obviously. Um, but I'm really keen to hear your perspective because it's completely different from the one that we already heard before. So my first question to you is, uh, can you tell us your story? How did you end up in fashion? And even more, how did you end up building a tech solution in fashion? Sure. So um, I was born and raised in Birmingham, England, and spent a lot of time as a child with my grandmother, who has been a professional dressmaker for 65 years. Um, as a child, all of my clothes would be repaired and recycled, remade over and over again. And then as I got a little older, as a teenager, I would buy clothes from the normal high street brands, you know, Zara, Topshop at the time, um, and then take them back home and have my grandmother kind of alter them so that they would fit me well. She would always take the hems of the trousers down. I'm pretty tall. So she would always lengthen the trousers so that they fit, fitted me perfectly. And seeing my nan tailor my clothes and kind of working with her to customize them so that they fitted me and so that I really enjoyed them and loved them as pieces of clothing really changed the way that I felt about clothes. And I would always kind of care for them very intently. I would wash them carefully. I would keep them forever. I would repair them when they were, when they needed it. And as I got older, I always saw my friends have a very different relationship to fashion. They would buy, you know, something similar from Topshop or Zara, but let's say um, maybe the trousers didn't fit them that well, or the dress didn't actually fit them um, as it should have. And, and rather than getting it tailored, they would always just wear it once and then end up taking it to the charity shop or even throwing it away. And I always thought, why can't we do this better? Why can't more people have access to somebody who can help them to love their clothes, just like I did with my nan? And always wanted to do something about it, but didn't because for a very long time, I was kind of busy building my professional career um, in other areas. So always, I guess, kind of my professional career has always um, been kind of pivoted around different technology companies and essentially figuring out and, and learning about how we can use technology to bring digital or bring communities together, let's say. So for while I was working with um, social media influencers for another period of time, I was working in mental health, but again, always kind of anchored by this idea of how can we use technology to bring people together. And then in 2019, um, I moved back to London. I've been living in Germany for a number of years. And when uh, I moved back here one, moved back here one day, I, I needed to tailor and I realized how difficult it was to find somebody who could help me just to alter a pair of trousers. The tailoring industry presented itself as one of kind of two very polarizing worlds here in London. On one side, you have 
high street kind of dry cleaner stores where the service is very fast it feels somewhat impersonal and and very kind of budget and this isn't what I was really used to and then on the other side of course we have Savile Row and very expensive and exclusive tailors and again that wasn't you know within my price range first of all but also wasn't the experience I was used to and I kind of realized that there must be so many people living around me who just like my nan had skills to sew and I wanted to pay them to work with me and help me to alter my clothes but I just couldn't connect with them and so the idea of the scene was born and I kind of conceptualized this very simple two-sided marketplace that connects specialist makers on one side to customers just like me on the other for different clothing alteration and repair jobs and just like that I ended up in fashion. I really like your personal story. Uh, I must admit, it's not the first time when I hear it, but every time it gets better and better. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I really enjoy it. So what would be super interesting to learn is how your, how your experience is connected with, with the wave of sustainability that we experience now. Is, it, is, is sustainability and the trends that, that we have somewhat kind of helped you to to realize, okay, now it's the right time to build a solution like like mine, or you thought it would would be possible, like regardless of of the market market trends. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. We we have a an environmental crisis on our hands, and um, back in two thousand and nineteen, when I conceptualized the theme, at the time I was working on another business that I'd founded, and and it was within mental health, um, another industry that I that I care a lot about, very close to my heart, and. I had to make a decision. I, I kind of started trying to run both businesses at once, and of course, it wasn't sustainable. So I had to make a decision: which one should I, which one should I prioritize? And as I say, mental health is a big issue right now. Um, and I knew there was a lot of opportunity there, a lot of stuff that I could do. But at the same time, we are on a on a timer here with the with the kind of devastation that's been causing that's been caused to our planet and. So I realized that it was really now or never to kind of focus on making positive change within not only the fashion industry, but much wider, um, you know, sustainable and responsible practices as a whole. Um, I think, you know, repairing clothes instead of just throwing them out and caring for clothes instead of just um, discarding them really does reduce the kind of unnecessary damage that's been caused to the planet. You know, by repairing clothes, it reduces our need to buy new stuff, ultimately. Most people don't realize how much impact a new garment of clothing can have on the environment. So, for an example, most people don't realize how much, let's say, um, water usage, how much water it takes just to manufacture, let's say, a new T-shirt. It takes 2,700 liters of water just to produce one single T-shirt. And, um, you know, at the same time, we can look at things like the emissions that are being created because of it. So the majority of clothes, again, most people don't know, the majority of clothes are actually made from petroleum-based fabrics, including polyester, acrylic, nylon. And then, of course, you have all of the harmful chemicals that are, that are used to kind of dye the fabrics and bleach the fabrics. So, again, for some fabrics, you know, the well, I guess, we, what we do know is how many kind of chemicals are used as a, within the industry. And there's more than 8,000 different synthetic and harmful chemicals that are used to dye um, and bleach fabrics for clothes. And of course, what we know is these chemicals can cause diseases, ill health, 
even kind of premature deaths among farmers and factory workers and communities. And by slowing down our consumption on a on an individual basis, we're really kind of reducing that ne- negative impact that we can have. Um, so yeah, the time is now or never for change in in, in sustainable practices. Again above and beyond just fashion but I realize that now is the time that I could perhaps yeah contribute um something value valuable so like to sum it up like on a very personal level the impact that we could have uh, like there's trend like the, that Matthew mentioned how to improve my emissions my personal emissions the simplest thing you can do is to extend the lifetime of my clothes to use them as long as possible and repairing them obviously is one thing using the good quality uh, natural materials is another one so that's from the personal perspective that's the trend that you're using to build your business to find uh, people who are willing to do that and want to do that Uh, but on like a larger scale when we are not uh, like skipping the personal perspective, the market perspective, the brands and retail, why it's important for them as well to start repairing clothes they're selling. Like it's, it sounds counterintuitive for them. It I, I could assume that they want to sell more, so they want you to throw the, the the clothes off. But actually, that's not the case, right? They want you to use their clothes as long as possible. Why? Well, I think there's a number of reasons, and, and just going back to that quickly. So, again, on a, on a very individual and personal basis, by extending the life cycle of a of a garment of clothing by just nine months of extra active use, we can reduce its carbon footprint by up to thirty percent. This is a huge number, and and surely, um, you know, it it makes sense for us each of us to try and just achieve that kind of very small change in our lives. So. Um, yeah, it's huge the impact that we can have through repairing garments and caring for them properly. I think on a retailer or on a brand level, um, there is a lot to be said around how, how how businesses now are shifting more towards sustainable and responsible practices, um, not only because they realize that this is the only way they're kind of future-proofing their business, um, but also in terms of kind of customer expectations, a lot more people now are buying based on values rather than just trends. Um, and I, I and I and I think it just makes sustainable. You know, it's the only way to kind of future proof a business model within the fashion industry. Um, also, at the same time, you know, if a customer, I, I just would like to, to tap uh, for a moment to what you you've said because uh, to me it's also interesting, like how sustainability connects with the need of people to follow fashion and to wear new clothing um, every every now and then instead of just maintaining what they have for 10 years. Do you see that both both things are somewhat uh, contradictory or is it possible to um, to have some synergy in the, in the long run? I think we're seeing a, a real paradigm shift in the overall um, focus and, and the overall mindset of what trends or what um, fashion really means. And Certainly, you know, you have this kind of traditional kind of uh, this this kind of paradox between what is fashion and trends and what is then style. And I think um, I can't remember who said this, but 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 that you know, there's this uh, idea that like the French will always um, dress based on their personal style, whereas you know, traditionally, kind of British people look much more and follow much more trends as to what other people are telling them looks looks good. 
Um, but but overall, I would say there is we are seeing a big shift in mentality. And um, for me, I can see it heading much more towards kind of personal um, personal style and and unique style. Um, we're seeing a huge rise in um, resellers, apps like Vestia Collective, Vinted, and so on. Um, really kind of encouraging people to um, shop for unique pieces and also buy kind of items that hold their value over time rather than um, just seeing them as kind of single-use purchases. Um, I think that's that's a really interesting change within the industry. Um, and, yeah, also this idea around kind of customization and uniqueness, you know, sneaker customization is increasing. The demand for sneaker customization is increasing really fast, as is customization for garments of clothing. You know, we offer kind of embroidery services or upcycling or different changes, visible changes. And we're seeing a huge increase in, in these kinds of services over the past, I would say, over the past 12 months. So, yeah, I do think things are changing. Um, in terms of the way people want to express themselves, I think individuality is is a thing now more so than it ever has been before, not only because of mindset, but also because of the tools and the access that people have um, to buy unique pieces. Um, and also, of course, services like the Seam that allow people to restore and repair older garments and bring them back into, into use. Yeah, I think that's the beauty of the system, actually, because if you want to extend the lifetime of a clothes, it doesn't mean that we have to wear them. So if we are thinking about improving our style, following the trends, we can still do that. And by exchanging the clothes or selling them back to the market or replacing or renting even, we actually have an access to more unique, like a, a group of clothes than we would have just by buying them. Because we have an access to the vintage, as Leila said, to the vintage, for example. That's that's the beauty of the whole circular system that actually it improves your like willingness to be unique, and you have better chances to do that with that. It's super cool. I, I like what you said about like style versus um, trends. Uh, I think it's 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 kind of key. There's uh, all sorts of uh, um, styles that could be uh, in the long run. Um, they wouldn't change very much like a like a classical outfit it's it's probably still you know good good to wear and looks good even though it might be might have uh, arise arose like um, many years ago um maybe going a bit to to the product side of things so wait 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 because we haven't explored the brands <laughs> and the retails yet i still want to I'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> wait a sec I, I st i'm still curious because there's an answer i want to hear i know i know that you uh, that you know it because we, we discussed that before but i think it's super interesting uh, example that is telling why also for brands and retailers it's important to um improve the, um, the the fact that we keep the clothes for example when we are buying stuff online uh, they don't really want us to return them because, and that's the question to you. Yeah. Um, so returns is a huge problem for retailers. It costs them so much money. It's a huge problem for the environment. Uh, if you think about, you know, even just the carbon emissions that are kind of built up with garments being shipped to people, trying them on and sending them back, it is a huge, huge problem. So services like the Seam really help to support retailers 
with this problem by offering customers an alteration service to help the garment fit them better rather than uh, and as an alternative to sending it back. So, for example, you order a pair of trousers, um, they arrive, you like the fabric, you like the style, but the fit just isn't quite right. Ordinarily, a customer would just send them back to the retailer and then go back and start looking for another pair online. The seam offers an alternative whereby, okay, the trousers arrive, they don't fit quite right, no problem. You scan the QR code, you book a maker who visits your house the following day, tailors the trousers to fit you perfectly, um, and there you go. The customer has a pair of trousers that fits them really well. The retailer doesn't have to pay for the return. The environment is better off and has is, is saved from another unnecessary return transportation Um yeah, another return drop off. Um, I think also there's this idea around, you know, having a garment fit you better invariably means that you will enjoy it more, you will wear it more, you will recommend it more, you will take more photos in it and so on. It's a pretty kind of cyclical um, relationship that we have with buying new stuff. And um, yeah, this is this is the best. This is better value, and it makes more sense for brands and retailers as well. The more use, the more exposure that garments get, and the more kind of word of mouth recommendations, the more photos, the more times that it's worn. It's it's much better for the brand, for the retailer. Um, so yeah, overall, it's it's uh, it only kind of impacts everybody positively. There have been a lot of questions around, you know, well, how does that affect? this model where businesses just want us to buy more and more. Um, but I think it's it, it doesn't work in harmony with this model. Actually, it's, it's kind of running alongside it. And I think this model of just pushing customers to buy more clothes every season or a number of times every season is, is kind of outdated anyway. I don't see that there's a real clear future in that. You know, it was just announced, I think it was last week that, Zara will now be charging customers for returns, um, which is a huge step in the fast fashion industry. So this kind of idea and this business model around just buy more, have it delivered, return it all is, is, is now very outdated. So it's about how can companies like the team help customers or help them to help customers just love the items that they do buy, help them to love them so much more. When you say that they will start uh, charging for the returns, what does it uh, actually mean? Okay, I haven't actually looked into it in so much detail, and I have the disclaimer here, but I read that um, you know typically free postage and free returns has, has, has been a thing for such a long time now, and it almost has been this kind of race to the bottom in, in terms of costs on postage and returns for different fast fashion retailers. And Zara have been one of the first companies, one of the first brands to really make a stance and say, you know, actually, it's costing the business um, money. So customers will have to pay for the returns postage. Um, and I have no doubt that this is because of other economic factors and changes around, you know, the cost of freight, you know, the, the freight, increasing freight costs, for example, um, increased Wages increase everything in prices right now for businesses. But at the same time, it does put a hard stop on customer kind of, you know, behaviors when it comes to just ordering lots of stuff that we don't need just on the off chance that we might want to keep it. 
I, I assume it's obviously there is like a financial reasoning behind it, but probably on a, on a deeper level, they uh, I, I could imagine they, they would like to shift towards slow fashion and um, abandon a bit the idea of um, selling more and more. Um, I think you're a bit ahead of that. I don't see Zara going into slow fashion, but it's nice dream. I mean, yeah? maybe that's <laughs> a bit of an exaggeration, but just, you know, just maybe not being as 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 in a place as they are now i think it's a it's a number of a number of factors to be honest and i think there'll be kind of pressures coming from different angles whether it's pressures from their consumers who want to see more responsibility or whether it's pressures from different um government legislation so for example a couple of places in europe already have um this kind of extended producer responsibility where it's The idea of, okay, if a customer, sorry, if a, if a brand sells a garment of clothing, actually their responsibility doesn't end there. It carries on to the end of the life. So um, that being said, they must help customers to care for their garments, repair their garments, and then, um, you know, end of life solutions as well. And there is a lot of conversation here, particularly here in the UK, around how we could implement something, how it would look. So... Whether those pressures come from their consumers, whether they come from legislation, whether it comes from increasing costs of freight and transportation and logistics, I think there are a number of reasons why retailers know that they have to make this change. Um, so it's just a matter of time. Going a bit to your product, um, you already briefly mentioned how, how the marketplace works. Um, I wonder... How does it decrease the, the barrier for people to, to actually fix their clothing? Like, it, it is, is it difficult to find uh, relevant people that could help? Or is it um, some other sets of problems? Like, if you could briefly describe how, what kind of barriers you, uh, you decrease for consumers to, to repair their clothing and also make them fit more. Yeah, sure. So at the core of the theme is this um, idea of using a local workforce of makers, which allows the service to be more accessible to more people. We match customers to makers based on two key factors. One is the locality. So we always try and connect people within the within the community, not only to improve accessibility, but also we find that, you know, connectivity is really important. I know this from spending so much time with my nan as, as a child and actually watching her sew my clothes and actually, you know, being able to talk to her about why we're altering it in a certain way or how we're going to do a certain repair really increases that connectivity with um, not only the maker, in my case, my nan, but in other cases, other makers, um, but also the garment as well. So building that connectivity within local neighborhoods is really important for us, not only for scalability, but also because it really enhances and, and, and kind of builds to our ethos. Um, but also we match customers to makers based on a second factor, which is the skill set that's required. So, for example, every maker who is working with the seam, who is onboarded as a, as a, as a maker to the seam, um, we have a, a, a long conversation with them. And when we really get to understand what are their specialist skills, we want to ensure that as a customer, if you come to the scene for a service, you're working with somebody who understands the fabric, that they have the right machines ready for the fabric, that they can recommend the right solutions. So let's say you have a denim jacket. We're only going to match you with somebody who has a machine that can take kind of thick denim fabric. 
uh, somebody who understands how fabric wash, uh, how denim washes, how denim should be altered, how denim ages over time and so on. And the same for, let's say, leather or the same for if you have a bridal gown or a very delicate silk evening gown. We always want to match you with somebody who understands that fabric and understands um, the garment that you have. So those two factors, locality and skill, are what allows us to kind of offer the service, but at scale. Mm, obviously, there are challenges that come with that. You know, scaling a marketplace inherently comes with the biggest challenge of how do we balance quality, you know, against kind of quantity. So. When I first founded the team, I, in fact, when I first founded the team, I, I, I didn't really know how it was going to work, of course, to begin with. And I just put some kind of leaflets around East London that just said three words on them. It just said, can you sew? Um, and I just put them all around kind of cafes or sewing shops or the University College of London campus um, and just kind of waited to see who signed up. And it was only because of the huge demand. So I think within two months, I had around 300 makers sign up to the website just from a few flyers being posted around that I was like, okay, this is, this is, uh, yeah, there's a huge, huge supply um, force here. So let's do something with it. And that was really what made me kind of make that decision. Um, but yeah, when I first kind of started, I, I, I basically kind of removed any barrier to entry for makers. I wanted everybody to, and I still do want everybody to have an opportunity to earn money with their skills. But of course, then over time, I've had to balance that with the expectations of our customers and being able to offer a consistent standard as a business when it comes to sewing skills, that it's like constantly balancing this quality of our maker workforce versus then the quantity. Um, but we're learning. We have a very... Um, Kind of we've created a blueprint now that that we kind of operate when when it comes to onboarding or finding recruiting and onboarding our maker workforce um and we've we've certainly spent the last kind of 12 months really refining that blueprint and that onboarding process um we know now the kind of perfect makers that that work you know where the relationship really works the team can offer them a lot they can offer the team the skills that we need so yeah, it's been a good learning process. I like the way of um, um, populating the supply side of, of the marketplace with leaflets. Yeah, I mean, it, it looks a bit different now, but certainly to begin with, I mean, I didn't really know where to start, right? I'd, I'd never, I was the most unfashionable, I mean, I still am very unfashionable, but um, had never been kind of part of the fashion world or the fashion industry. And certainly not here in London, you know, it's the heritage and the kind of, the, the the real clout and the power and the influence that 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 is that is here and kind of um you know fostered within the fashion industry here in London felt so overwhelming and the thought of ever kind of trying to tap into that was was really just a huge deal and I didn't really know a path to do it. So yeah at the time leaflets around cafes felt like a good way to start. <laughs> um but yeah we've progressed a little bit since then but yeah, leaf leaflets are great. I have to say they're not the most sustainable way to promote the business, but um, people do still really like something that they can touch and hold, you know, and if you get them into the right places, you know, cafes where people are just enjoying their coffee, they have a little bit of mind space maybe to read something, then yeah, I mean, they, they work for us. 
Yeah, I think it's a good advice to, to early founders how to, you know, build a proper acquisition channel, forget the social media, like go for leaflets. Uh, <laughs> the basics are sometimes uh, the most effective way, right? hundred percent. And a lot of the time I was, I can remember, yeah, like actually standing there in kind of the busy fabric shop, standing there, handing them out to people, but not just for the reason that I wanted to give them a flyer, but I, I needed to learn. The only experience that I had in the industry was from my nan. and um, yeah, I, I knew what a customer wanted because it, it was me and, and it was my friends and it was the people around me. But I needed to learn more around, about what makers wanted and what would work for them. So I just spent pretty much spent the first six months just visiting makers in their studios and just just interviewing them and just listening and just pretty much drawing out the product in my notebook as, as to what they wanted, what could what could help them and make their lives easier. Um, so yeah, I think having a conversation with your customers, whether it's your supply or demand, is a really good way to start. And would you be able to shed some light on, on the demand side of things, how you attracted your first uh, clients? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> I think... Any leaflets? <laughs> uh, no leaflets on the... Certainly not to begin with. No leaflets on the customer side. I mean, we do have now, but no leaflets on the customer side of things to begin with. Um a lot of it was around partnerships. So working with organizations like Fashion Revolution, um, who are a global organization really spearheading change um, in the in the industry. Um, it's founded by an amazing lady called Ursula de Castro, um, who was really supportive of the scene, certainly in the early days, um, and working with them on different events a lot of community projects. So again, starting very, very local was, and I would, as and when, if I found other businesses in the future, I will certainly be doing the same thing. And it's just starting with a very, very small market size. So just starting here in Hackney, working on Hackney's in East London, just a very um, small part of it was my kind of stomping ground and just kind of working on clothes swap events, um, speaking with people in the local charity shops or vintage shops, um, doing different kind of community events. If there was a sustainability event, I would be there. If there was a market, I would be there. Um, and again, just kind of listening with people. And it really is true that if you build up that kind of first base of 100 very loyal and very kind of engaged customers, the service doesn't have to go great for them, but they have to feel heard and you know creating that open communication channel where they can give you feedback you listen to it and make the change that's really the most important thing and building up that first 100 customers was just very very manual um friends a friend you know you go to a dinner and if you could if you, if you met one person there who was interested and then they became a customer that's great um not that that's the only reason I go to dinner with my friends is to sell the business, of course not. But, you know, it's just this idea of every one new customer is really um, is really valuable. And, and, and yeah, that's certainly how I would and how I started the scene. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Not only hands-on, but boots-on-the-ground approach. Uh, it's highly effective. Uh, there's one last topic that I, or last one question I wanted to ask you, because uh, for me personally, it's also super interesting. Your company is uh, female-led, female-run, and you focus, like you spend a lot of time to building an environment uh, friendly to men. And most of your team are women. And uh, how is it going, basically? What are your thoughts after, you know, those months of running a company this way? 
How did it go? Um, yeah, it, it's going very well. We have an amazing team dynamic. Um, our board and our shareholders, our investors in the business, I would say is 50-50, 50% male, 50% female. But our team here um, in operations is majority female. Our team on product and dev is majority male, but with some women as well. I would say, you know, founding a tech business as a woman and, and my advice perhaps to other people um, would be that know, know that it is tough, but it's absolutely possible. And I think depending what industry you are in, but always if you're looking for investment, know that the majority of the time when you're pitching, you'll be pitching to a room full of men. I would say my experience around 85% of the time have been to a room full of men. And it can be daunting, especially at times when perhaps you're feeling uh, lower confidence or a little unsure. You know, of course, there are these days, certainly as a sole founder as well, where you feel a yeah, lower confidence in other days. My best advice would be, and this is again something that I did, is reach out to reach out to people who can support you in, in the form of perhaps an advisor an official or non-official advisor, people who have done it before, people who you admire um, and, and and use them as, as, as really your support network and to help build your confidence and to help make you feel more prepared for those times where you are feeling a little bit kind of lower in confidence. I was always incredibly humbled and, and pleasantly surprised at the responses that I got back from people when I, when I reached out to them asking for their support. And I think, yeah, as I say, just just very surprised by how willing people are to help. Um, and by having a, a group of kind of really smart and knowledgeable and very well-connected women around me, I was able to, to, yeah, certainly kind of tackle those days where I was feeling less confident um, about the situation. So... I would definitely say to anybody looking to do it is 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 reach out and ask for people to support you. Um, something that I've also learned just over the last few months when I've had people reach out to me asking for support is that I always feel so much more inclined to respond and also to help them if they're asking a specific question. So I don't know, say, for example, I, I'll receive two requests. Um, both of them are asking, can I can I advise or can I support the business in some way? If one of them is just this idea of like, you know, I need you on board just to help with stuff, it feels very overwhelming. I don't have the time to do it. It, it feels like too much kind of brain space that right now as a founder myself, I don't have. But if someone is to approach me and say, you know, I have this very specific topic, whether it's pitching for a pre-seed round to a certain investment fund that I know the team have worked with, or whether it's, you know, how to attract our first few customers in a market-based business model. And that person is very specific about why they think I'm the right person to do it and why I'm the right person to help them, then it becomes very easy to be able to offer that support. And um, yeah, this is this would be my advice to other 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 women out there is um yeah, know know that it will be difficult, but it is absolutely possible and lean on other people in the space. So it's a lot about confidence. Um, 
uh, based on what you said. And I'm, I'm very curious, like if, if you pitch in front of, let's say, uh, mostly male investors, would you be changing your pitch in any way in comparison to if, if you were just pitching to, to, a, to a room full, full of uh, women investors? Um, honestly, no. I think, you know, so much of my pitches over the years for whatever purpose, whether it's brand partners or to investors or to advisors who I would like on board, um, remains pretty much the same. My story is very personal and my reasons for founding seem um have always been the same the ethos of all has always been very clear perhaps there are some changes in language or examples you know when I'm talking if I'm talking to a female friend I'll you know explain to her the benefits of using a service like the theme because she might want to alter her wedding guest outfits for example I know that from the services that booked on the team, this is one of the most common outfits booked by uh, female customers at this time of year. So I might use these examples. If I'm pitching to a room full of men, I know that the majority of their requests are around suits and tailoring. So, you know, small things like this might change, but ultimately, no, the messaging remains remains the same. Thank you so much, Lila, for, for the conversation. Uh, we've learned a lot today about the fashion industry, building marketplaces and... Uh, yeah, the perspective of a female founder. Uh, it was very interesting speaking with you. Thank you so much for your time and uh, for our for our audience. Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned for the next episodes. Thank you.